Hello, I'm Lisa O'Neill, and you're listening to The Matriarchitects. The Matriarchitects podcast and platform highlights changemakers who are building a culture that respects, values, and celebrates women. These individuals and their stories offer an antidote to the hard times we live in, showing us that new ways of seeing and being are not only possible, but are already here. Thanks for joining us. Let's build together. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you this episode of The Matriarchitects featuring Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne is the author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. She's also the co-editor of Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements. Adrienne is a writer, social justice facilitator, pleasure activist, healer, and doula living in Detroit. She is the co-host of the How to Survive the End of the World podcast. In our conversation, Adrienne talked about the power of vulnerability and truth-telling in intimate relationships and movement work, about the way mothers and women elders have always made moves over time, creating social change by working for a better future for the kids in their care, and about the pleasure activism and witchery of Beyonce and Lizzo. Adrian also discussed how shifting cultural beliefs open the way to shape ourselves beyond gender, how recent protests in Puerto Rico reveal possibilities in making movement space one of joy, pleasure, and connection, and how the practice of radical honesty can help us protect the miracle of our lives. I love your books. I feel like they're so wonderful, and I'm really grateful for your work in the world. So thank you. Oh, thank you, sweetie. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I really appreciate that. It's been it's been really remarkable to put out things that really feel um, immensely personal and have it re- received, you know, by by so many people who are like, yes, thank you. Because yeah. um, it just makes me feel like I'm not alone. A lot of people feel this way. A lot of people notice these things. A lot of mm-hmm. people long for these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes the things that are the most vulnerable in terms of what I put into the world when I'm like kind of terrified to do that when I do, that's the thing that people resonate with. They're that's like, the thing. oh, that's they're always like, this the is thing. it. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I feel that's the always same the thing. Way. I'm like, when I'm really scared and I feel like there's that there's some viral like poem. <laughs> like you trying to remember like who the actual poet is, uh-huh. but it talks about that, that it's like when you're shaking like a leaf and you're shaking with terror, like that's when you're about to speak the truth. And that's the most important thing you can say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that, like so many of the pieces of, of particularly pleasure activism, it's been interesting. Like the pieces that people keep responding to are the ones that are like, that were the hardest to write and the scariest to write. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. And and the ones that people most want to hear me read because I've been doing the way I've been doing the book events is like I read from Audre Lorde and then I read the pleasure principles and the definitions of pleasure activism and then I ask people because you know folks have been reading it so I'm like what do you want to hear next and it's so funny the ones that people requested are often the ones that I'm like oh my god that was the hardest one to read you know? <laughs> yeah um, you're like are you sure. <laughs> I was like, are you that's sure you want to hear me read about my period right now? Okay. Like, yeah, that's great. But you know, I just also finished recording an audiobook, And so the audiobook, that process was also hilarious. Cause it was like me in a room with, you know, in a tiny little room where there's no one in there, but then there's like all men outside, <laughs> like a, yeah. a team of men outside. And so I'm like, all right, I'm about to go read about squirting now and see you guys, you know, on the other side. But I mean, it's also worth it because they're like, we want to talk about these things. We need to talk about these things. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what people want to talk about is like the hard stuff and like the, I mean, yes. the vulnerable kind of core getting to the heart of things stuff. 
I'm wondering if you might yeah. if you might talk a little bit about where you learned ideas of femininity and womanhood. Mm, that's great. Um, so I, I think I grew up with a strong mother mm-hmm. um, and a, I mean, like a ferocious mom. Like I was just telling someone about my mom, actually, that when we were kids, if anyone would try to question us or cast aspersions on our honesty or tell us that we had to be something that we hadn't decided to be yet. My mom would be the first person there, like, you know, walking up to that school right now or like coming in, you know, like we could count on her. Like she would be the one who would interact with the teachers and be like, you don't get to tell my child that, um, or you don't get to speak to her that way or calling out racism. And, you know, she was a white mother of mixed race children and, you know, there's no playbook for that. Right. Especially not in 1978 (laughs) when I was born. Um, there's mm-hmm. not like some guidebook that's like, here's how you do this. So she was figuring it all out as she went. So she was like coming across racism and coming across patriarchy and coming across all these systems that she had been raised inside of. And as a mother recognizing like these don't work and they're not going to work for my child, which I think is how so many, I think how so much change happens is that right. it's women who have children and are in touch with their children. And like, I can't deny the truth of who you are. And so. Um, you know, I'm going to have to change the whole world in order to make sure that you're safe. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, that feels like some of my earliest concept of like, Oh, what does it mean to be a woman? It's like, she ran the household, you know, she was the one who determines like how resources were going to get spent and used. She was the one who was with us while my dad was in and out going my father was in the military. So it's like, he'd be in the field and out of the field. But like my mom was that consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other piece of it is that I had all these aunties in my life when I was young, like my mom's closest friends. And one in particular comes to mind, my aunt Margaret, who is, has been in a battle with cancer uh, for the past year, but she, she also showed me like what it means to be a flamboyant over the top, comfortable with yourself woman. Yes. Um, Like, you know, she was just always show up wearing like 20 different patterns and like her house always had a million colors and like all kinds of elements of nature. And, you know, it was like, oh, if you're going to have an appliance, like get the brightest color appliance to have and like just like jumble (laughs) it all together. And like she would laugh so loud, you know, like there's just like ways that I was like, oh, she does not care about what anyone else thinks. And that was a very early concept of what it meant to be like you know, the kind of woman that I, I feel like I'm always becoming is rooted in, in sort of that, like there's a ferocity that protects and there's a a way of being flamboyant and inviting other people to like, just do what they really want to do, feel what they really want to feel. So that feels, yeah, that feels really good to remember and to sit with. And then, you know, and then you get the stuff, like, I feel like in school, I was taught like to be a lady, which feels very different from learning to be a woman and feels like such a, it feels like the way ideology puts a prison around what it means to be a woman. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, you should be polite and you should be submissive and you should be surrendering and you should be quiet and you should be serving. And you should, you know, like, you know, a woman shouldn't show these parts and she should always have everything shaved and she should, you know, like, there's just like stuff like that where it's like, Oh, none of those things are actually what it means to be a woman, but that that's also in my socialization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like yeah. now I want to hear your answer to that. <laughs> like where do you learn to be? I'm like where do we learn these things? <laughs> I'm like yeah. yeah. Well, I grew up, you know, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I feel like that in in, oh, in Catholic wow. school, and so I feel like that informed a lot of. So you're like Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Yeah, well, I found yes. her later than I would have liked to. It was more like yeah. the pure, virginal Mary, like, Man, submission, virgins. like, so masculine, so patriarchal, so empirical. And yeah. so, like, you know, we're not um, allowed. I actually have this story. My parents were friends with someone who was getting ordained in the Catholic Church in New Orleans where I grew up. And we went mm. to the ordination and I was like three and or uh-huh. maybe two even. And um, I was watching this trail of men oh, wow. and, and go down the aisle. 
And I turned to my dad and I said, where are the women? And he was like, Ooh. and you know, it was tiny, but I was like, this, what's going on? This doesn't feel right. You know, there was something that I felt on a cellular yes. level, like this is wrong. I and so that. I feel like, but I feel like from a young age, I also, uh, I had a very strong mom too. Mm-hmm. And even though I grew up in the South and I grew up enculturated and in kind of this like traditional ideas of femininity, I always had this desire for justice at a young age. And I was like, this is really fucked up. And even when I was trying to be immersed in what I thought I was supposed to be and figuring that out as an adolescent, I was like, I don't think this is what I want for myself. So um, yeah, it's really interesting. But I feel like I love that example of your of your Aunt Margaret. I feel like seeing women like that, whether they were related to me or just even in the images I was seeing or the films I was seeing or whatever helped me kind of reimagine that could look like. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. right. That's right. And how, how has that evolved for you over time? Like how has, like where, mm. where do you land in relationship to it now? Like ideas of femininity? I mean, I think I, I went through a long period of time where it was just about figuring out my relationship to feminism and womanism mm-hmm. and understanding, like, I, I feel like part of, you know, as I think a lot of people experience, like going to college for me was this period of deep and maybe deep unexpected exposure to a whole new world of ideas. And I had been longing for the ideas, but didn't know, you know, it's like, you don't even know you're longing for it. It's just like, right. I know that something is something else. There's something else There's something else. And um, so I feel like college was that introduction to like, oh, there's a whole there's a whole set of ideas that women have been moving forever and mm-hmm. they include so much more than I was taught. Um, mm-hmm. and so much more than I was shown. And like, I look back now, um, with a lot of compassion for the women of my mother's generation. And before I always, I say this to people often that I'm like, we are living in the space that they opened up for us. Right. And so when we look back, I try not to look back with too much judgment of like, well, how could you not have, because in my parents' relationship, it's like my father was earning money. My mom Mm -hmm. was, you know, moving that money, managing it, and then like managing home. And a lot of that was a very traditional, you know, way of being in relationship with each other. But I also look back at like all the moves that she was making inside that cauldron to create something different for her children. And I look back at her mother who had three boys and three girls and was up to the same thing for her children. Right. And still to this day, I would not describe as a feminist in any way. And yet the children that she raised, all of those women have found a way to be working and to be, uh, which, which was not what they were raised in. Right. It's like they were raised to be wives and each of them found a way to also be workers. And I think there's something Mm -hmm. really interesting about the liberation that comes from being like, I make my own. Right. Um, no matter whether I want to be a wife or not wife, you know, I think that like the separating those paths feels like what my mother's generation was up to is like, wife is not contingent on being a worker and worker is not contingent on being wife. And Mm -hmm. so now I look around and I'm like, oh, you know, things that have been interesting for my generation are what is intersectional feminism? What does it mean to have, to layer all the identities on top of each other? And And then like, why do people resist? You know, like, I'm like, oh, when I meet people, like, I'm not a feminist. I'm like, okay, cool. What's that about? Right. Mm-hmm. And that so much of that is about the intersectional or non-intersectional nature of how people are holding it. Almost every right. time I meet someone who's like, yeah, I don't really identify that with that. It's because they're like, because of racism, the racism that exists inside of how feminism gets held. Um, yeah, by so many, feminism. Or like, trying yeah. to, right. It's just like, oh, we place this above everything else or whatever. So I feel like I've been, I've spent most of my adult life in those waters, like figuring out what is the, what are the ideologies of what it means to be a woman in this time? How do we broaden our scope of it? And then the way that gender has been falling apart in our lifetime Mm -hmm. in interesting Mm -hmm. ways. Right. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. Oh, like I say this in, I think in the intro of pleasure activism, but that I'm I'm like, I'm a woman with some boy in me. Right. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, that feels important for people to notice. And I'm like, I, I have always known that about myself. It's only been like, in the past decade or so that I'm like, I regularly meet people who are like, oh, this is my place in that spectrum. And it is a spectrum. And here's how that right. spectrum looks. And, and like, 
for me, I find myself shying away from people who are too definitive about it, you know, because I'm like, mm-hmm. it really is shifting under our feet. And mm-hmm. then if that's true, then we get to shape it. And I'm really interested in being of a generation of women who are shaping what gender looks like from our perspective in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. And and then, you know, which to me, this idea of a matriarch or a matriarchitect, you know, like that women have always been shaping the world and now we're shaping it again. And and what what is the next shape? And like, do we shape ourselves beyond gender? Mm-hmm. How do we hold on to what is beautiful about being a woman? Because I'm very much like, I'm very grateful mm-hmm. to be a woman. Like, I'm like, I wouldn't, in this time, I wouldn't want to be a man in any way. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, it's, like, yeah. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want that burden. I wouldn't want that burden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the burdens are, mm-hmm. the, the feeling and the texture of the burdens are so different. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's like, you know, if you have, spe- you know, what it means to be a man is like, I have been steeped and socialized in causing trauma for others for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And now that's coming back at me and I just I'm watching the men around me either meet that challenge or flail but it's really heavy it's you know? so heavy um, yeah yeah I'm sorry I think you were gonna say something else in relationship to that yeah I mean it's it's heavy and it also feels like part of the role of women whereas like so, for so long the role of women has been to catch men mm-hmm. right to, to catch them like they go out they work they struggle they fight whatever and we're supposed to catch them at the end of that day and now it's like we're out struggling and working and whatever and there's like no one to catch them and so I'm watching men in so much loneliness having to like learn almost for the first time like how do you actually make friends yeah. and how do you intentionally choose vulnerability and I feel like and we're teaching them that without necessarily being like I will come and teach you that you know it's like I'm teaching you that by doing it myself like I try to just be as transparent as I can be yeah. about right about yeah. here's how I am navigating real deep friendships here's how I'm navigating intimacy here's how I'm navigating boundaries I can't do it for you I can help you know that you need to do it you know? Yeah. I think that's so important because I feel like men are not given those models and then, uh, or people that are socialized as men aren't given those models. And then like, yeah, it's so hard. I have so many dear men friends who are really do cis men friends who are really doing the work, but it's hard, you know? And I think about, I think about your woes, you know? Your, and like yes. reading about I've heard you like you know I follow you on social media so I've heard you talk about them but then in the book you know you have that whole yeah that whole section where you all are in conversation <laughs> and it's so beautiful to witness those decades right decades of support yes and the yeah. way that that has allowed you a container to be with everything the good and the really hard stuff yeah Mm -hmm. exactly and like there's a way that it's the worst it's like the hardest thing to explain to people it's like the only way you get there is through the discomfort Mm -hmm. like I have to be regularly so uncomfortable with them you know I had a moment recently where I just had this like so the work that I've been doing through emergent strategy keeps opening up these huge, big swaths of emotion and new territory inside of my life and my heart. And it's very hard to talk about with people because I'm like, how do I explain, (laughs) you know, how do you talk about magic without sounding totally loopy, right? Right. And uh, so I had one of these things where I was like trying to tell, you know, I was like written them this long, 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 long message about, you know, all these things. And I didn't hear back from them that day. And it's like, they were busy. (laughs) They were doing stuff. I was like, um, you guys, I really need like just some response about <laughs> it was so uncomfortable. Oh my God. It was so uncomfortable yeah. to be like, I need you to see me. And especially because my visibility is up. So it's like a lot of people see me, but they're not my woes. They're right. not my close friends necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right. And so really noticing that, that like, oh, no matter how many other people have aff- affirmed it, it's like for the true deep affirmation, you have to have intimacy because it's, it's like you need people who are like, oh, I see the work that you did to get to where you are. Whereas, you know, someone who's just like, oh, I came across your work. I read it. It was awesome. But I'm like, yeah, but you don't know the backstory. Right. You don't know everything I had to do to even get these words out of my mouth. And that the affirmation, you know, like when I, my mom and my dad, when they say, we are so proud of who you've become, I, it means so much to me because I'm like, you've watched me through every, every failure, every falter, every stumble, every missed opportunity every um 
trauma, every loss of myself, every heartbreak, you've seen all of it. And you know that there were many times when I didn't want to be here at all. And so to come all the way back from there to like, I'm succeeding and you as my parent get to, to witness that it's, it's a blessing to me that I don't take for granted. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Also, I just want to say that that is working on excellence. And it's a couple of your dear friends, because I said woes, and then I realized some people might not know that. So it's a group. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you want to explain (laughs) people who are working on excellence? Yeah. So I got the terminology from Drake. um, But I have been taught many times that it actually has roots in New Orleans. And so I'm like, Mm. I respect because I love New Orleans so much. And it can take all the all the credit for everything I think you know I always tell people every time I'm in New Orleans I'm like I I know that that we live in a mass production culture I get that and so I'm like it always saddens me that we didn't decide to like mass produce New Orleans if we were going to go for a look um, as opposed to like big box stores and like crappy condos and stuff like why not balustrades and like wraparound porches (laughs) you know like why not gorgeousness but um but so woes are people who are you know, I think a lot of us develop this in our friendships, but unintentionally. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way the woe part of it is saying intentionally, I'm going to really live my life on purpose. And here's what I'm trying to be up to. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you to walk with me on that journey or or move. I'm trying to move away from the ableist language of walk with me, but like move with me through this journey and hold me accountable when you see me drifting off of my path and help me return to myself and to what it is I'm meant to do and not, um, not let me fool myself. You know, like I'm a, I'm a fiction writer, um, Mm -hmm. in my heart. And so there's a way that at any point I can spin the story to be whatever I want it to be. You know, like, I'm like, I can, I can turn this moment into a success. And I help, I think the woes, having people like that in your life really helps to be like, no, for real, for real, you did that. Mm -hmm. Like, or this is really what it is. Or like, no, I think right now you might be you know, pulling the wool over your own eyes a little bit. And like, um, I check in with my woes about everything, you know, Beyonce on her, the last album that she did with Jay-Z, you know, she, she had that, she had this album about her friends and she was just like, I talk to them about everything. Like I don't make decisions without them. And it made me so happy for mm. her and so happy for me. Cause I'm like, I'm really grateful that I also have my people like that. You know, before I invite someone to be a part of my work, I will check in and be like, Hey y'all, I think this person's meant to be a part of my work. What do you think? And I want to get that feedback, right? Uh-huh. Or before I, you know, move into relationships, I'm like, hey, I want to get this feedback. You know, what do y'all think about this situation? And it's just like so helpful to have a council mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. who are like, yep, that is aligned with where you're heading or or that's not aligned. You know, I've also had my woes really affirm mistakes for me, right? Where I was mm-hmm. like, I think this is a mistake. Is it okay to make it? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, Cause you do have to make some mistakes in life and it might, it's helpful to make ones that you're like, I can see, I can see the detritus of this. It won't take me out. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll survive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's close. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about in relationship to that is uh, radical honesty. And I got to tell you when I read yes. that the first time I was like, I was like, but real, but is this necessary? <laughs> because you talk about, I mean, it totally <laughs> is. It one thousand percent is. But it when is. I, I read it, I promise you, you absolutely have to do it. But my reaction vulnerable. was like, it sucks. Ah! because like you're talking about <laughs> from the from like just saying like, no, I don't feel like talking right now. Instead of that's you know, hard, right? It's so hard. That's so hard. I mean, that's the thing. So I will say this: I've been, I had been in. When the book was written, like I had gone through a year of multiple breakups Mm -hmm. and each of them had a different reason. Like here's, you know, each breakup had a different reason for the breakup. But when I reflected on the pattern overall, the thing that shook me was like, I have been not as honest as I need to be to get the results that I want in this connection. Mm -hmm. Right. And in small ways that I was like, there was one person where I was like, I love reality TV shows and I can't tell this person that I like reality TV shows because they cast so much judgment on them, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, you're not a real whatever it is, right? And so it was just such a funny thing for me to be like, okay, well, I really do love them. And so I was doing all this contortion and lying so that I would be able to carve out the time I wanted to watch these TV shows. Right. And it's so embarrassing to say, but it was, it was even more embarrassing to be in those moments and be like, this person is like, I want to talk to you on the phone. And I'm like, Oh, uh, I have a meeting. I don't have a meeting. 
Bachelorette is coming on, right? <laughs> or whatever it is. And so, and it's like, I'm a grown up. Like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And then that created a fissure, right? That like this person, you know, I mean, in so many ways, it was like, oh, I've constructed the relationship in which they have expectations that I'm not able to meet. I'm not being honest with them about why they can tell I'm not being honest with them about why it's making them spin out to a whole nother thing, which is like, there must be another person. And for me, there's almost never another person. Mm -hmm. It's almost always, there's just me. I'm the other person. Mm -hmm. There's something that I want that I don't want to deny myself. And, and I feel I have to contort to get it. And, you know, I've done that with emotional eating. I've done it with all these things. And so I made a commitment in that, that period of my life that I was like, I'm going to try radical honesty with everyone. And, you know, it means I do awkward shit all the time. Like I have gotten onto conference calls and been like, I hate this. I'm getting off right now. Right. Like this is not what I'm supposed to be doing because I also, it's very much tied in. The radical honesty is tied into being protective over the miracle of your life too. Right. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. if I'm not honest, like everything I'm not honest about, I'm wasting time trying to create the lie around it or to create the contortion around it. It's just taking extra time that I'm like, I don't really think that's how I'm supposed to spend my life time. Right. Is like constructing stories, uh, you know, to keep intimacy far from me instead of finding out who's really down to be close. So yeah, I feel like the radical honesty practice has been one that I get a lot of feedback from people around that even a week of practicing it with one person is transformative for people. Mm-hmm. And that feels mm-hmm. and that feels really gendered to me too because I feel like Mm-hmm. especially young girls we are taught when we grow up socialized as girls like we're taught not to trust our own feelings we're taught that the most important yeah. thing is to keep other people happy and we we learn you know we learn to be to be more attuned to other people's desires and needs than our own and i think that's where some of the exactly. lying comes from right Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? It's like, it's worse to hurt someone's feelings than to say your own truth. And which what happens is we don't learn how to tell your truth without being harmful, mm-hmm. right? That we think that we're causing harm to someone. And, and when, you know, it's not necessarily like, there's so many times when I'll tell someone the truth thinking like, this is going to hurt their feelings or something. And then they're like, thank you so much, because you kept me from living into the contortion with you that would have left me, feel, you know, like people feel so betrayed on the other side of being lied to. Right. Um, you know, so it feels like instead you're saying, no, I, I want you to actually see me as I am. I also think there's something really interesting about how often we lie to stay in situations that we should be out of. So like, and I think that also gets taught to us as young girls because we're taught that like we should be landing a husband or landing a life partner and that our life is not going to be complete or good until we have done that. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this, this race against time. And in some spaces, some families, I have a lot of friends who, you know, have experienced like their parents really pressuring them as they get to certain ages or their whole family is really pressuring them as they get to certain ages. Like you are not living right. If you haven't done this, Mm -hmm. you know, if you haven't figured this out. And so then you see women getting, what I see is women getting more and more desperate as they get older to find someone. And then that transition happens for most of us around the age of 40, where we're like, wait, <laughs> I give no fucks. Right? You just realize like your life is good. Like I have met so many women who are like 40 and older who are like, wait a second, actually my life is so great. Like, and I, I will say this, I have been celebrating lately that I did not get roped into a patriarchal mm. marriage. You know, there were several opportunities and what I think of as like my near misses now where that could have been a part of my journey. And as I'm watching this fall of patriarchy, I feel so grateful that I've actually been able to attend to my work rather than mm. having to be the assistant to a man's work, um, to a man's emotional labor, to a man's, you know, falling apart. And I'm grateful to all the women who are in that work Mm -hmm. because it's not easy. And I know that it's rooted in love. Like I see the women who are like, I really love this person and I can't leave him in patriarchy either. And so here we are trying to work through this, but I feel really grateful that for my journey, none of the men were in that category. None of the men that I have loved in my past were people where I was like, I'm supposed to put your emotional growth over mine. Mm. And you know, for me, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to really center black women's emotional growth. Mm -hmm. And so 
I'm going to keep creating text and keep offering up the lessons and keep following the learning of Black women and just like expanding with Black women. And it's been so useful for my life. I feel so grateful for it, but it's required relinquishing a lot of politeness and moving into loving kindness, um, which is like two doors down, right? Because right. it's still about, <laughs> I care, you know what I mean? Like, I, I still care how this lands on you. I still care about you as a human being. I want to be fundamentally kind, but I'm also going to be honest with mm. you. And, and, you know, my general rule is if I can't be honest, I don't try, I don't even pretend like I can be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of like, Hey, I'm going to move out of this. And I say that on both sides, right? Like mm-hmm. if I feel that someone's being dishonest with me, because often people are being dishonest without realizing it because that, that, that instinct to contort is so heavily socialized. Mm-hmm. So I often will do that move where I'm like, Oh, okay. I can feel that for whatever reason, this is not a place where you feel you know, good or safe or whatever to be fully straightforward with me. And the, 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 this, um, what is it? Disalignment Mm -hmm. in the, in the system. I can feel that it's like, that's how my empathy works is that I can really feel the, like what's happening in the channel between myself and someone else. And often I can feel it without words or without clarity about like, I, I, I don't have the kind where I'm like, I can, I'm not appreciative, right? I'm like, I can't be like, oh, this is because of this. <laughs> like, right. yeah, I'm just sort of like, there's just something off. I don't know what it is, but there's something off right now. And um, and so I'll ask, you know, like I've been in friendships, you know, where I'll just feel like, oh, I'm feeling a open heart and I can feel that there's a shadow somewhere. And I'll say to that person, is there something up? Like, do you feel something up? Is there something going on? And often, you know, I've, ha- I've had friendships like this. I'll ask like three or four times and then I'll just give it some space because mm-hmm. time is good medicine. And like, you know, in my longest term friendships, there's often been those periods of more spaciousness Mm -hmm. and then coming back together and being like, actually, yeah, this hurt me. Mm -hmm. Or actually, yes, I was going through this whole other thing during that moment and you sensed it. Or actually, yes, right? And so sometimes it's just like, you know, how do I name the truth? How do I give you space? How do I trust that, you know, sometimes boundaries come in the back door, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And how do we relearn how to trust our intuition and our gut about things when exactly we've been told that exactly. the only thing that matters is our intellectual process or that logic is how we're supposed to make all our decisions, you know? I mean, that doesn't work for yeah, me. Yeah, I've been, um, <laughs> well, you know, I've been doing, so like I do somatics work and mm-hmm. a part of what I've been learning in that space is about like, oh, how, how if I slow down and drop in, I can hear so much data from my body mm-hmm. and that my mind is socialized, but my body really isn't, right? Like, I think what happens is our bodies get quieted in the process of socialization, but they don't actually get socialized, right? Like, there's no part of my, like, my thighs don't feel like there's anything wrong with it, right? <laughs> my mind feels like there's something wrong with your thighs because right. you know, like they're cellular, right. there's this or there's that. But my body, my thighs are just like, bitch, I'm just being thighs right now. Right. Like, I'm trying to help you get from one place to another. I'm soft, I'm squishy, whatever it is, right? And so I think that for the whole body that I'm like, oh, in my heart, when my heart is like, yes, move towards that. Like, how do I, how do I stop my mind from being like, well, no, here's the 15 reasons why that's not the right next move. Mm. And I'm like, some of those reasons are good, but a lot of them are rooted in shame, fear, um, respectability politics and other things. And then I'm like, oh, how do I drop back down into the, the you know, in, internal pendulum of my body and be like, wait, what am I actually feeling? Mm-hmm. Um, and can I trust it? And I think for many people, intuition shows up as a distinct bodily feeling, a yeah. felt sensibility that we are taught to overlook. And then as you start to tune into it, so like when I'm facilitating a huge room of people and something is about to open in the room, I feel something that almost feels like a pulling at the bottom of the soles of my feet, like roots coming down, being pulled down out of me. And I feel tingling up from my shoulders, up the neck, into my, into my head. And now lately I've also started to feel like a, um, a pulsing at my palms, like that my hands come alive. Right. So like, I'm like, probably that data has always been there and it's always moved me, but I've spent the last 10 years learning to feel it more, right? So now I'm like, woof, I get fully connected and 
I, I feel like I'm expanding to the edges of the room or the edges of the space. And then something happens and I'm like, there it is, right? Some honest moment or some, you know, um, a moment that would have maybe terrified me because I'm like, that's not on our schedule. That's not part of the agenda. Like, that's not what we plan. Like, this could go badly. But it's like, if I'm that connected, I'm like, nothing can go badly. This is just humans. They're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. But it's all data from the body. And um, now one of my challenges is like, how do I, how do I begin to teach that? Like, I've learned so much through somatics. And then I'm like, okay, but my work as a facilitator is different from somatics. Like, I don't want to, I can't say to everyone, you have to go through, you know, the 10 years of somatics I went through to learn how to feel yourself. Right. I, I have to be, I'm like in a space with people where I'm like, we're in this black liberation work and there's a crisis happening right now. And I need you to feel yourself right now. So what can I do with my body to make that more possible for this room? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then trying to figure out like, how do you teach that? Which is a good challenge. I feel like that might be the, the, the challenge that lasts the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of, you know, in Pleasure Activism, which is like such a wonderful book. And it was I had the experience that happens to Mm. me sometimes when I read where I'm like, oh, God, I didn't know how much I needed this. I didn't. But then I but then I read it and I was like, oh, these were things I didn't even know I needed to hear and absorb. So and I've heard that from other people, too. It's just it's really helpful. And when I saw you at a book reading, you were talking about how sometimes people which one in New Orleans, I was home visiting Oh, the community bookstore. It was, it was so hot, but it was so beautiful. So it was the one where it was like sweltering. Yeah, their AC was broken. And Ah, I was like, perfect. But people were so generous. It was really magical. People were just passing out water and just passing around the water. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there was yeah, it was like packed and people standing outside and everybody was like, we're just in this heat together to talk about pleasure. Um, No, it was great. um, It was great. (laughs) And there you talked about how people, sometimes people that are involved in social justice movement work are miserable uh, and sometimes even attached to the idea of that (laughs) suffering or resist pleasure. And I think that comes from ideas of like sacrifice, right? Or like what it needs to look like. Absolutely. Um, but you talk about in the book and, and, you know, at your reading, you're talking about that pleasure needs to be prioritized in order for us to heal and create collective change. And so I'm yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I feel like so much of what happens in terms of like, oh, movement has to be about struggle and sacrifice is like the truth is our people are struggling Mm -hmm. like the truth is the majority of humans are actually struggling and don't have what they need to survive because we're in this collective economic um mess that only works for some people but that has us all thinking that like we could eventually succeed in it right Mm -hmm. so i'm like capitalism is a disease i think that Mm -hmm. is tearing us asunder and then we're all in that and then, so I think when you come into, into movement spaces in this day and age, a lot of it is professionalized. And so there's an immediate guilt factor. Like you get your first job at a nonprofit or something, and then you're like, I'm getting paid to do this work. And so I think people are like, well, but our people are struggling. And then there's always, so it starts to be this sense of like, I have to show how hard it all is to justify that I'm, I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, or that I have, you know, that I know how bad it all is, but I'm still doing okay. And I'm like, I don't think that's useful to the folks that were, that were trying to move. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that the nonprofit structure is useful necessarily either. I really have, I really am in a place that is trying to broaden the concept of what it means to be a movement worker beyond what can happen inside of the nonprofit mm-hmm. structures. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because they're, they are pushed by philanthropy. And so I think when we bring ourselves into relationship with nonprofits, even if we can't articulate it, because sometimes people are like, it's not professionalization or there's white supremacy or there's other things. But I'm like, it's also distinctly, we're putting ourselves in direct relationship to the desires of wealth, mm. right? Like we're putting ourselves in a direction, direct relationship of like, what are wealthy people willing to spend their charitable dollars on? And like, how far are they willing to let change go? 
Um, and most of the time, the answer to that is not far. philanthropists will let change go only as far as it will not impact their wealth. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they want to keep that power dynamic in place. And so, so we're, we, we've got that hampering process mm-hmm. at the front end of trying to do movement work. And I think it, it deeply impacts all of us. And so then we come into movement space and I think we're just feeling so much guilt and shame and like, and then this, the, the truth of being a human being, which is you can never actually do enough. Right. Right. Like that's the, the, the duality I always sit with is like, I am enough. My work is enough. I think about that all the time that everyone I meet, I'm like, you are enough. And also there's a big part of me that's like, and I'm totally insignificant. And what I'm doing is never going to be enough. And like, especially I feel that after, you know, there'll be like the biggest events where everyone's like, this was so amazing. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but it's not enough. Like I have that same Mm -hmm. feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and also that's true. Like that's one of my favorite things about Buddhism is that that first noble truth is like that suffering is real. The Mm -hmm. lack is real. Like the, (laughs) you know, it's, you're not making it up. It's like, as soon as you take that step into individualization of being like a solo body for a lifetime, there's a part of you that that pain of stepping, stepping away from the whole, which I think of as like the universe, God, you know, that, that, in that deeply interconnected space where part of us is always like, Oh, I always want to get back to that. And so that's a little heady, but I do feel like for me, I feel that is all tied up in the way that we approach movement. It's like, we want to be so much more connected to each other than we can get because of the structures we're in. Mm -hmm. And we want to be so much more connected to what we quote unquote, you know, the people than we can get because of these hierarchies of structure that get set in place. And we think that if we create enough suffering in our lives, it'll justify somehow the small privileges that we get. And I think it's bullshit. Mm. I don't think it works that way. Mm -hmm. And I think people can all see through it and feel through it. And that's why we just get in these loops. So what pleasure activism does in many ways is invites people to say, create a space that actually feels so good and compelling to you. And then broaden that space and open up that more and more people should have access to it. And it's not about resources. Mm. Like the place where pleasure is felt and emanates from is the body, the self. And everyone can access it. I have been like standing over the protests that are happening in Puerto Rico right now. Mm. The rebellions, the rising up, because so much of it is just straight up pleasure activism. And it's so beautiful to Mm. see. I just posted this um, piece on my, on my Instagram story. I'm going to try to find it and see if I can, let me see if it's still on here. That, okay. So someone sent me this, this is a schedule of the protests and this person it's Adripo-like, I don't know how to say it, like translated the schedule for those of us who don't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. So the schedule says group cycling, bedtime story reading, oh my God. intense grinding, <laughs> yoga and meditation, a human chain, a 5K run, the mothers for Puerto Rico, a mini concert for kids. Like that's the schedule of how they are doing the resistance, the images of people like doing aerial work and dancing and the tremors. And, you know, I'm just like, who wouldn't be drawn into that? Right. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Like to me, I'm like anyone who's in on any of the islands of Puerto Rico is just like, I want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about liberation, right? And I'm like, that is an invitation I would say yes to. I am saying yes to. Like we're going to go do an immersion uh, for emergent strategy in Puerto Rico. And like so many people have been like, you have to come here, come here, come here. And I'm like, you know, often the invitation is like, things are so hard here. You have to come here. Uh-huh. And in Puerto Rico, it's like, things are hard here, but also we are creating the most beautiful, compelling movement. I'm like, great. I want to support that. How do we grow that? Mm-hmm. And how do we learn from that? How do we, how do we, how do we on mainland learn like what it looks like to be in joyful movement from this Island, from this place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. But I was like, totally. You know, yeah. I, I feel like that's what I keep trying to create and I keep trying to do it with rigor, right? Like I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm never telling people like there is no pain. It's more like there is pain and laughter and joy and pleasure are the ways that we actually survive that pain right. and, and have something worth living for on the other side of it. Because I do think right now we're in a unique place where we have access to all the suffering that's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Like you can go on the internet and you could spend the entire day just searching for all the suffering that's happening that day and never even come close to right. touching all of it. It's so available to us. And then the climate crisis, then the climate catastrophe, then the catastrophe of black people, then all these other unfoldings of pain and trauma. And it's like, 
our, the next generations are going to be fighting just to want to live. Mm -hmm. There's too much pain. They're going to be fighting just to want to be here. And I think our job is to remember to teach them and show them and embody for them. There's so much worth living for. And it's all about relations and connections and being connected to land, finding a tree that you can fall in love with, finding a creature that you can claim and learn from. Like it's so much about putting yourself back into right relationship with this place and with each other that can sustain through the hard times that we have con constructed for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I, and I, I love, I love too like that and the book and to me, pleasure activism feels really intertwined with mindfulness and with bringing attention to the things that give you pleasure and prioritizing those. And, yes. You know, there's a whole section on yeah. the pleasure of wardrobe, which I love because like, I love getting dressed every yes. day. It's like, a, it feels like a kind of art making process for me. And it, and I feel like, I don't know, years ago, I was like, I'm allowed for that to be something that I love and I'm allowed for it to be something that I love apart yes. from the idea of performing a certain way that yeah. I was taught in terms That's of, right. you know, and, That's um, it. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. And that, and so I just Giving love, yourself that permission. Right. Yeah. And, and enjoying it and savoring, savoring is another thing I think of when I think to a pleasure, like not yes. sort of stopping it midway through being able to fully enjoy whatever it is that is bringing you pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Can can we talk about Beyonce for a minute? Honey, every <laughs> single day. <laughs> I'm never done with that topic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. I, <love> so <laughs> I was I feel like I was she's just gifted us with so much delight. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, like there's a whole part just about the pleasure of being alive when Beyonce is alive just like <laughs> living at the same time of her living at the same time as her yeah and I feel like it, you know there's been a couple of moments in my life when I've been like kind of brushing again you know like people are like oh you know we can take you backstage you can meet her whatever I'm like nope mm -mm. Mm -hmm. I love our current relationship where I just get to worship her and like worship the ground she walks on and I can't believe that I'm alive at the same time as her and she's just out here creating stuff I love how she moves you know, like how the, the choices she makes. I love that she just was like, I'm cast as Nala in the Lion King. I'm going to turn it into an entire event for my children. I'm going to make a whole other album um, mm -hmm. that just is like t bringing you the entire continent. Like, I just love how she moves. She, it just gives me pleasure. And like, you know, we're both Virgo, Sun, Scorpio, Moon people. And so what I feel in her is how much she's like, you know, about her work and getting shit done, but also feeling things really deeply. And that she takes the things that happen in her life and she makes something beautiful out of them mm -hmm. and offers them back up to people. And I feel like on my best days, that's what I'm up to as well, is being like, huh, I had my heart broken. Here's a story about that. Ah, you know, a movement heartbreaks, right? I'm like, a movement, movement heartbreaks are what led to emergent strategy, right? Mm -hmm. um, movement suffering is what led to pleasure activism, right? It's very much like the most intimate offering I can make. Mm -hmm. And you know, I love that she's just a great model for that. She feels like she's in the lineage of Nina and the lineage of Frida and the lineage of other people. And I love just whatever it is in me that's like, loves her so much that I'll say that, even though people are going to be like, girl, she's a pop star. I'm like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I see what she's up to as an artist and it moves me deeply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and as a witch and as a worker, like, I think she's a total witch. I think she's just mm -hmm. out here. Actually, I want to, I want to, I want to plug this. My friend um, has a podcast called, uh, I think it's called A Little Juju Podcast. Mm -hmm. And she just did an episode that is about how Beyonce is a witch. <laughs> and it makes me so happy that she's done that official episode because I'm just like, yes, like if that's not casting spells, I don't know who it is. Like mm -hmm. that's, she's up to it. She's up to it. She's doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You identify as a witch. Yeah, I do. And you I am do. a witch. I am. A witch. I'm a little baby witch. I'm a little baby witch. I've got some other magic that I've been learning about, like, because I was like, am I just a witch or is there something? There's, it feels like there's some other stuff moving too. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning about all of it. But I do identify as a witch. I work with elements mm -hmm. all the time. I work with altars. I work with spells. I feel like spells and intention and manifestation and elements can actually change what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm an intuitive witch. Mm -hmm. So 
it's like, I didn't go to witch school. Like I've really just been feeling into, like I've been finding my way and feeling into it. Spells have called me or just come pouring out of me or like stuff will happen. And, and I'm just like, drop in and feel what the move is here. Like I had mm-hmm. a friend who um, got arrested last year and was being sent into prison. I was like, okay, you need to take this water and we need to speak intentions for your homecoming and you need to put it under your bed. And it was just like, I just knew that that's what you needed to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I got that information from. But I was like, that's what's going to help unlock the miracle of you being able to come back out. And she was back out in record time. Like people are like, it's impossible that she's back out now. And I think it's because she put her intention on that miracle. Right. Right. Um, But I feel like that's to me, witches and doulas are very aligned with each other in a way, because it's really like putting it, finding out like, what is it people really want? And if it's aligned with the universe, it can happen. So it's like helping people articulate what it is they really want and then helping them figure out like what elements from the universe do I need to use in order to be able to, to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that makes me think too of, I love your, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, I feel like one of the most powerful takeaways from emergent strategy for me was and I kind of was baffled that I I was like, oh, right, of course, you know. But when you talk about how the world we live in is not coincidental and did not happen by accident, right. the, the world we live That's in right. was conjured, right, by people yes. who had a certain idea of what the world should look like and who should be on top and that there should be this kind of hierarchy. And so that it's not frivolous or time wasting or whatever to be really spending time with intention and dreaming big and conjuring about what we want the world to look like that is actually like the most necessary thing that uh, it's just such a trip to me that people don't want to put time on that but I'm like what is the declaration of independence Mm -hmm. you know like people wrote spells they wrote down things they're like this is how it's going to be white supremacy is encoded through spell casting. It's not something that people just decided was like the right, you know, it's like someone decided that and then imposed it on others by manifesting and speaking it out loud over and over again until it became a truth. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this um, other meme that went like around last year sometime. And I reposted because I thought it was the best shit ever. <laughs> it was like, people always talk about time travel, that if you t- travel back through time and you change any small thing that you could change the entire future, but we don't think that our small work now matters. Right. right? And I was like, I love that. Cause I think about that. I'm like, yeah, you know, that if you went back and like, you know, if Harriet Tubman got the flu at the wrong day, mm-hmm. that would have changed history. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? But we don't think about our health and how important it is to protect our bodies now. Right. Like, you know, when I look back at the women of my political lineage, right. Which is like, Definitely Audre Lorde, definitely Harriet Tubman, definitely Octavia Butler, right? Like I look back and I'm like, these are the women. I'm like, the ways that they protected themselves and their bodies so that their minds could still move the ideas they needed to move into the world is really important to me. Mm-hmm. I want to be that way with my body and my health. It's, it's led to a lot of shifts for me that I've been like, okay, like, because I wasn't paying attention for many years, I have these knees. I have this like extreme arthritis in my knees that I inherited from my dad that got exacerbated by a lot of my choices. And I'm like, okay, I'm 40. Like, how do I want to live the rest of my life in regard to these knees and this body? Like, how do I want to be as healthy as I've ever been? Mm -hmm. And right now I'm healthier than I've been for most of my adult life. And I want to continue moving that up the scale. Um, being like, oh, my body wants to move. I need to swim every day. I need to be in the water. I need to do my yoga. Like I need to strengthen my core. I need, you know, like, cause I want to think of my body as a, a body that's being used for the politic of my mm-hmm. times and not just for my own personal health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it makes people happy to see me healthy, right? Like when I show up someplace and I'm like, I feel alive and you can feel that I've been treating myself well. And I think it's really important in this day and age for people to see as many happy, fat black women as possible. Yes. (laughs) Right? Like, I'm like, I am doing great. Thank you very much. Yes. You tried to kill me, but I didn't die. And not only did I not die, I'm having a blast. Mm -hmm. What about you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that feels politically on point for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, which makes me think, um, too, of Lizzo, who is another Black woman artist who is so inspiring. She's one of my goddesses. She's so inspiring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. She's so good. Mm-hmm. She's so good. I went to see her show. Have you seen her in concert? No, but I have tickets for October. I'm really excited. Yeah. So what was the show she like? She is also a witch. She <laughs> does like the somatic healing work on the entire room. So she mm-hmm. has everyone like cast spells up into the air about their own belonging and their own self-love and their own power. And then before the end of the night, she has everyone gather that energy back down like from the ceiling and from the room, like she's like, gather some of it and tuck it into your heart. And like, anytime you need it, I'll be there. And it's true. Like I literally find myself walking around sometimes. I'm like, you know, I'm 100% that bitch. And Uh it just like comes out that I'm like, yeah, you know, like, (laughs) like yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that self love and, and she's another one. And I, I, I also in my own way, cast protection spells over her because I'm like, she is ascending so rapidly mm-hmm. into such um, visibility. And, you know, she talks sometimes about being unpartnered or being lonely or being other, you know, like going through depression, and other stuff. And so I just sort of cast energy in her direction to always keep her feeling that deep sense of belonging that she has folks who have her back and that she feels protected that at the end of when she gives so much to people that there are folks on the other side of that who catch her and hold her and give her back so much right I just feel like Lizzo you know like to me any of these women who move into these positions any humans who move into these positions are like I'm trying to do some good in the world I'm trying to bring light into the world those light bearers it's like oh making sure they get held in the darkness too sometimes Mm. to be able to replenish Mm -hmm. you know totally yeah totally yeah Yeah. you know the roots of your work you talk about the roots of your work in the black feminist tradition and you speak a lot Mm -hmm. about both octavia butler and audre lord and audre lord's the uses of the erotic is the first i think it's the first piece in the book maybe yeah and I'm wondering yeah, it's the first like real piece <laughs> yeah and and that can you talk about the way that that has informed mm-hmm. your idea of pleasure and pleasure activism and you know the book yeah I can I can so there's this piece in there um and maybe I'll just read you a little touch of it okay there's this piece in there that I like keep reading to people over and over because I'm like this is so good and it feels like such a simple way of understanding everything. So she says, during World War II, we bought sealed plastic packets of white, uncolored margarine with a tiny, intense pellet of yellow coloring perched like a topaz just inside the clear skin of the bag. We would leave the margarine out for a while to soften, and then we would pinch the little pellet to break it inside the bag, releasing the rich yellowness into the soft, pale mass of margarine. Then, taking it carefully between our fingers, we would knead it gently back and forth over and over until the color had spread throughout the whole pound bag of margarine, thoroughly coloring it. I find the erotic such a kernel in myself. When released from its intense and constrained pellet, it flows through and colors my life with a kind of energy that heightens and sensitizes and strengthens all my experience. And every time I read this, I'm just like, boom, that's it. Like the the rest, you know, there's so much theory, there's so much other stuff, but really is like, there's something that each person has, like everyone actually has it. Mm -hmm. And the quality of your life is whether you attend to it and let it open and need it through the rest of your life, or whether you keep it as this tiny constrained place. And it feels like it shapes so much of how I approach this work, because it's like, we, we can't survive if we leave the good part of us, the good feelings, the intimacy, the joy, all of that in this tiny constrained place and expect that like somehow the rest of our life will be okay. And the rest of our society will be okay if none of us actually bring that into the forefront. So I feel like so much of what I'm trying to do is burst that little pellet and knead it through all of movement space, Mm -hmm. right? So that like any time you come in contact with people who are trying to create a better world, it actually feels better to be in their presence and be in the spaces that they create. Right. I think we would get the numbers that we need and find the tipping points that we need if we were able to attend to that that pleasure work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I also just loved <laughs> you, you invite people to masturbate before each of your chapters. Oh yes. That's the first footnote is to have an orgasm, uh, not just masturbate, <laughs> yeah, but to actually have an orgasm before opening the book and then to have one 
at the beginning of each section, yeah, um, or chapter, if you want to, I have gotten so many hilarious social media um, <laughs> uh, messages related to that. People really love to share that they are doing the homework, and uh, it is <laughs> it's changed my life <laughs> to to just receive so much orgasm data. But um, <laughs> sure. it it really does feel like. I mean, you know, I, I know that not everyone can orgasm. And so mm-hmm. I, I want to hold space for that. And I feel like a huge number of people can and don't often mm-hmm. or don't really let themselves. But letting information into a body once it's been opened and released that way is so good. Mm-hmm. It's just good for you. It's just like you receive stuff in a different way. Mm-hmm. So, And I also yeah. feel like it's mm-hmm. one of the most, the, it's a thing that people get early, um, they get stigmatized for so many people so early exactly and so i feel like that is uh it's a it's a practice that helps people as they're engaging with these ideas also probably for many of us heal heal that relationship or heal that um that wound that probably started when we were very young so yeah yeah and i feel like there's something around taking the time taking the time and saying like, I believe in myself. I believe I deserve this. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Like, and uh, you know, it takes time. It, I, I want to also pace the book for people because folks will just like fly through it. And I'm like, if you fly through it, it's like you read it, but you haven't really experienced it. Right. And I want you to experience it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually have one more question that just came, which is that both emergent strategy and pleasure activism have your writing as a feature, but they're also, you know, on the front, it mm. says written and gathered. And I'm just really mm-hmm. interested in the form of your books and the decision mm-hmm. to cull and to use your writing and your experience as sort of this fascia tissue. And then, yeah. you know, and then also having the voices of other people who either inspire yes. you or who are doing this work in ways that you feel like are important to, uh, to elevate. So I wonder if you yeah. could talk about that for a moment. Yeah. Um, I feel like the only way I could write books is if I, if I did them this way. So everything I've ever done has been like this, like Octavius Brood is actually an anthology, emergent strategy, Emergent strategy, I had written a huge portion of it. Mm-hmm. And then when I was like in the final throes of it, I was like, this isn't working. And it's not working because it's just my voice. Like it's too much my voice. And that's not how emergent strategy works. That's not how I've mm-hmm. learned it. That's not how I experienced it in my life. It's like, it's a ton of people doing a ton of practices that may or may not have ever been called emergent strategy. Um, and those voices need to be in there. And so I think I mentioned this in the book, but like I reached out to all these people that I admired and I was like, how are you modeling off of nature? What are you learning from nature and appreciating as nature teaching you how to be in movement? Mm-hmm. And I received so many beautiful responses that the when I turned in the second draft of the book, it was up to like 500 something pages. And the editors were like, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole section of the book that's just on the internet, that's on our Emergent Strategy webpage. Mm-hmm. It's an entire, basically it's another full length of a book um, that's up there. And it's just, there's just so much, right? right? So for me, that weaving is always important. And right now I'm working on my next book, which is a book about facilitation and mediation for movement. And it's the same thing. Like there's a few people, and this one is very targeted. Like there's certain people who I'm like, what you do is really brilliant, really unique and really different from how I do it. So I'm like, I'm going to cover the territory I know, mm-hmm. but just like in real life, there's stuff that happens where I'm like, oop, I don't know that I need to call in Tanya Lee right? Mm-hmm. Ooh, I don't know that I need to call Princess Hippel. Like there's certain people that I'm like, I need to, you know, bring in the experts that I look up to. And so I'm trying to also weave that in the book that, you know, we're actually never doing stuff alone. And when I read a book where it's like this one person is just writing it all by themselves, often that's the thing that I'm looking for to validate it is how they weave in the voices of their influences wow. and their lineages. And like, you know, I, I'm very suspect of something where people are like, I figured this out all by myself and here's what I got, you know? Yeah. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, sure, right? Like that that to me feels like, like when something grows toxic is when you think you've done it alone, mm-hmm. right? And I think you see that that plays out in organizations all the time is that people are like, I'm the solo leader and all of a sudden it just becomes very toxic because they really believe that they're doing it by themselves and so they don't honor 
the other work that's happening until it's too late. Um, so, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out like, how do I, how do I relinquish that solidar- sol- sol- solitary creative nature as early as possible in the creative process? And it's very hard because it is easy to work alone sometimes, but it's not true. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Awesome. This has been such a great conversation, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really much. appreciate getting to talk with you. Such a pleasure. Really thoughtful questions. Oh, yeah, good. really a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Like, uh, no pun intended. Yeah, I but know. Pun intended, everyone, I everyone <laughs> says it to me now. They're all like, my bad. And I'm like, no, it's truly, that's how I want my life to feel. Like, mm-hmm. like one pleasure after another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm grateful to you. Thank you so much. I'm wondering if, just to close, if there is a practice that you use that might be helpful for people listening to kind of, I think sometimes because of the world we live in and because the way we have been taught to not allow for our own desire and our own pleasure, we can actually just become so disconnected from what it is we even want. And so I'm, I'm, Uh, you know, so I'm wondering if you could share maybe some words or a practice for people to start engaging with that and you know really being with themselves and uh yeah. activating activating that pleasure hmm. I think one you know I'm, I keep trying to work from the patterns of feedback that people are giving me yes. and so one of those patterns of feedback is the radical gratitude spell seems to help a lot of people drop in deeper to their pleasure practices. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a spell that you, you know, the idea is like offer this to everyone you come in contact with, especially those who are working for justice and liberation. But the idea is that you want to be in a, in a relationship of gratitude and that you are enough and that the work you're doing is enough. Because what I find for so many organizers is that they don't believe that. So I could read it actually. And that could be, that could be our closing. Beautiful. Does that sound good? Yeah. So a radical gratitude spell. It's a spell to cast upon meeting a stranger, comrade, or friend working for social and or environmental justice and liberation. You are a miracle walking. I greet you with wonder. In a world which seeks to own your joy and your imagination, you have chosen to be free every day as a practice. I can never know the struggles you went through to get here. But I know you have swum upstream, and at times, it has been lonely. I want you to know I honor the choices you made in solitude, and I honor the work you have done to belong. I honor your commitment to that which is larger than yourself and your journey to love the particular container of life that is you. You are enough. Your work is enough. You are needed. Your work is sacred. You are here and I am grateful. Thank you so much to Adrian Marie Brown for speaking with me. Find out more about pleasure activism, emergent strategy, and Adrian's other projects by checking out the show notes. Thank you too to singer-songwriter Jillian Bissett whose voice you hear at the beginning and end of our episode. I'm Lisa O'Neill. Thanks so much for joining us and listening to The Matriarchitects. You can subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your listening platform, and you can support the project by sharing this episode, leaving a review, or finding The Matriarchitects on Patreon. Let's continue to build a world where people of all genders can live their fullest, most purposeful lives. See you next time.